Hi, I'm Willie Miller. Hi, I'm Seth Coe. I'm Taylor Mackett. Hello, I'm Jonathan Mackett. Hi, it's Grant Hackett here. Hi, I'm Sharon Spring from the Wallaroo. I'm Azuma Nelson. I'm Gasherin, and you're listening to Not the Foolish Show. Yes, you are indeed listening to another episode of Not The Footy Show. And as usual, we've got a great guest lined up for you today. We're going to be looking at, well, employment within sport. And we're catching up with the head of marketing from CV Check, and that is Colin Boyan. And I think some of you, even if you're not involved in that side, the administration side of sport, if you work in the workforce, you'll find what he's got to say really interesting. Anyway, I'm Ashley Morrison. And I'm John Lee. Good to see you again, John. And you. In a couple of weeks. It has indeed. There's been plenty happening as usual. <laughs> oh, yeah. So, uh, but look, I thought I'd start us off today and just lead into that interview because, you know, we, we've talked about it for many, many years, uh, about the staff that within sport and how sometimes we seem to get it horribly wrong mm-hmm. and appoint the wrong people. And I think that what we're seeing today as well is we're seeing more and more people that are... Um, I suppose doctoring would be a good way of putting it. Their CVs or their LinkedIn profiles. To give you an example. Not just in sport, but. No, across the board. But, I mean, it is happening more and more in sport that you're getting. For example, you get a lot of coaches that will tell you their doctor their playing career and make out that they've done more than they actually have. I mean, there's one that springs to mind where there's, there's a certain coach in Australia who puts out that they played for a club in England. When you go back and check it, they were in a youth team many, many years ago, never got a senior contract, never were part of the playing staff. It was just like they were a youth player when they were about 13, 14. Now, to me, that's wrong. You were not a player with a Premier League side if you were in a youth team when you were 12 or 13. Is that like, say, marketing or sponsorship people who claim to have worked for major sporting clubs in Europe and haven't? It's exactly the same. Yeah, in my opinion. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I've had somebody... We have a, had politicians who've claimed to have served in, in, in the, the military. forces. Yeah, over here. Don't know how they thought they were going to get away with that one. Yeah, but I mean, I, I had as well, I had a call from a, a broadcaster asking me, oh, can you let me know about this person? Because uh, I saw they worked at this tournament and you were there. And it happened to be the Aslan Shah, which, as you know, I've commented that for 10 yeah, years. Yeah. And I said, they were never there. Look, I've never seen them in all the years I've commented. Not even seen this particular person at the event, event, (laughs) let alone commentating it. And they'd got that on their LinkedIn profile and put it on their CV that they were there. So it's kind of crazy. And, I mean, there's there's one closer to home where, you know, in Australia where there was a, a CEO who was, I suppose, he was fired because the contract was not renewed. And they wanted him out and they just said, cheerio. Ended up in another organization as a CEO. And I remember talking to one of the board members there going, how did this person get the job? They said, oh, he was the only one that applied with a CEO uh, who'd been a CEO in sport on his CV. I said, but did you check his background, like why he left where he was before? Oh, no. (laughs) Then that particular sporting organization then went broke because of it. Yet this person still has ended up with a job in another sporting body within Australia. And you just go, that is crazy. Well, how can we avoid this, Ashley? Well, this is where uh, we I wanted to catch up with Colin because the company CV Check, they are now, if you don't have time 
to do those checks they will go out there and do them and it's probably best if i let him actually explain it rather than me trying to promote the company that he works for colin boyan welcome to not the footy show hi ashley great to be here now looking forward to catching up with you now as i mentioned you come from a company called cv check now i believe you don't actually check a lot of the claims in the cv you're more there to check the official stuff is that correct Look, um, I guess our background is in verification of information, partly. Uh, at least that's our history. Uh, we're also looking, we also now deal with ongoing management of credentials. So we help businesses to make sure that, you know, every day of the working life of the business, they've got the right people with the right skills in the right roles. And I presume that's obviously where you've got some industries where obviously they need a safety issue, say, or qualifications to work with dangerous goods, explosives or something like that. You've got to make sure that everybody's still up to date their qualifications. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, with uh, the, the implications of not having the correct credentials or qualifications to do your work or, or even just the right skill set so that you can be you know, effective and productive. Um, as such that nowadays you know, companies themselves are driving a lot of these initiatives to make sure that they've got the right people, but also you know, there's government legislation, there are quality standards. So there's a, a growing awareness right around the world that it's, you know, it's so important that people are correctly qualified and skilled to do the works that, that they are doing. And I would think as well with a lot of companies at the same time trying to streamline their operations by cutting staff numbers, it's very difficult to keep on top of that. And that's where a company like you would be a huge asset. Absolutely. And that's actually one of the side effects of not knowing who's qualified is you will often overtrain people because you, you want to stay on the right side of the line or you, uh, you don't manage your resources efficiently and effectively. So uh, as a cost control measure, knowing you know, that you've got the right credentialed people and that everyone, you know, you know when people's credentials are expiring, it can save businesses a heck of a lot of money and you know, millions, hundreds of millions of dollars in it across an industry in, um, in, in redundant credentials verification. So you know, we, we don't just push or go and verify credentials or go and verify your people for the sake of it. There's, there's actually a benefit across a whole of industry in, in large industries where there is uh, an ongoing and strong compliance requirement. Did you get involved with COVID? Because obviously there were a lot of compliance issues during the COVID pandemic, especially here in Western Australia. I mean, was it was it really difficult? Or were you called in to sort of help companies make keep across, I suppose, all the changes that were happening with regards to compliance? Yeah, 100%, Ashley. So that was one of the initiatives that we introduced pretty quickly as we uh, you know, were observing what was happening and think, even anticipating that you know, there will be a time when, businesses and government want to you know themselves because of their own management or because of uh, you know control measures be able to verify that people have been vaccinated so yeah, we were pretty early into the game in that and one of the benefits of a system where you've got automated management of credentials you can imagine if you if you're just managing this on a spreadsheet across a couple of thousand workers and trying to keep track of everybody's vaccination. Firstly, you've got to get hold of the documents. Secondly, you've got to, you've got to get people to, uh, to turn up and provide them in some form. And then thirdly, you have to have that vision right across your organisation. So, yeah, we were, we we're on the ground 
helping uh, you know, businesses, especially in the mining sector, but you know, also uh, you know, other sectors right across Australia deal with that. Now, I mean, obviously we're, we're a sports show and, and I mean, we've seen a lot of people within the sporting world. I would think those requirements are slightly different to the corporate world, although there are obviously police checks and uh, working with children, even I would think health and safety issues that you have to be across. So do Would you feel that it is different or is it still pretty much the same? Well, look, there are many similarities. You know, these are businesses that have a duty of care to their players, to their staff. Uh, you know, they, um, if they've got um, investors and boards of directors who, you know, have the same legal liabilities and responsibilities that anybody in, in any other business have, um, as well as, you know, one of the things I think that's unique to sporting clubs and the sporting industry as a whole is all of those grassroots communities and sporting clubs that, you know, each code is working with to you know, see the body of players that are coming through and, and, and to make sure their sport's improving. And so you've, you've got this massive pool of vulnerable people who are working within that particular code and you know, really under the auspices of, of that business in one way, shape or form. So yeah, there, are, there are lots that they can do and lots that they need to do to protect all those different levels of, of people and workers and the community. Probably an unfair question, but do you think a lot of them are doing it or, or are sort of they might do the basic ones, but then it's too hard to do the others? Oh, look, I, it's hard to generalise because everywhere you go, there will be people who are shining lights and, uh, and it often comes down to, you know, the level of awareness um, and, you know, the various drivers externally from the club or... Um, Unfortunately, one of the biggest drivers for people to take all of this kind of thing seriously is you know, after they've been burned once or twice. And, and you know, it's, it's really unfortunate. Um, and, you know, I, I understand it's human nature to want to believe the best of everybody. And, and we don't want to take that away from people. We don't want to be, you know, um, you know the enforcers and stormtroopers stomping around with big boots. Uh, but, you know, they're... There are so many vulnerable people that are affected. And, you know, if you've got, for example, even just um, you know, a club, if you've got the, the, um, the committee members or the, the people, the secretary, et cetera, or whoever's dealing with the finances, it's devastating to a you know, medium-sized club. If someone takes off with or embezzles money out of that club, they may not recover from it for years or if ever. So, you know, it's, it's just one of those things, unfortunately, anyone that's ever been burnt like that, and you know, there was a, a pretty famous case of a netball club or a netball association, I think it was in Victoria, that had exactly that sort of thing happen to them where somebody, an unsavory person, took a lot of money out of that club. And uh, it's, it's a hard thing to recover from. There are not too many clubs that are, you know, the coffers are overflowing and, uh, and they've got the ability to wear that sort of a cost without implications. Yeah, I mean, you said to me when we were sort of setting up this interview, one thing you wanted to stress that as a company, you don't actually play judge and jury. You just give the information to the company. So it's not, in fact, you guys that you're, you're giving them the information. It's up to them what they do with it, which is probably the fair way to assess it, isn't it? A hundred percent. Yeah, we're, we're all about um, making informed decisions and intelligently managing you know, what's on your plate in terms of your personnel and your personnel risk. 
And it really, it, it's about all of these things uh, have a context. So, and the, the simple example that everybody understands is, you know, if I'm, I'm dealing with somebody who's got uh, maybe a police record, well, then the question is, well, is, is that relevant to the role that they are about to undertake or currently undertaking? And, and maybe it's not, maybe it was a, a simple misdemeanor, you know, many years ago, or, or if it, but if it's related to anything to do with fraud, then you've got to be very careful about where you place that person in your organization. But the biggest one really is because uh, most people are aware of, of police checks. And, you know, for, for us, um, it's kind of like the, the table stakes. If, you, if you're not doing police checks, then you really don't know. If you're not doing identity checks and police checks, then you don't really know who you're hiring. But the bigger, richer opportunity, I think, is really in that ongoing um, verification and, and control and updating of people's you know, qualifications and the things that they require for that role. And, and there might even just be, you know, there might be soft skills as well as hard, um, you know, certification skills. Do you check those qualifications? Like somebody may claim that they have, say, a degree or a diploma in a certain field. Do you go away and check that as well? Oh, absolutely. And we, we heartily recommend that people do that, right? And, and for two reasons. Um, one is that it's so easy these days to fake a qualification. So you can buy off the internet. You know, I can, I could be a rocket scientist if I wanted to be. Um, and with a certificate that looks exactly like an official certificate from MIT. And, you know, no matter what countermeasures the educational institutions try to put in place, the fraudsters and the counterfeiters can buy all the same equipment. And there are people out there that would like to shortcut the path to <laughs> obtaining that qualification, right? So, so it's not enough to receive a transcript or a certificate or anything else. You must go and check back with the source organization that issued the qualification. So that's the first part. The second part really is when somebody's claiming a qualification, whether it's required for that position or not, they're really trying to put themselves you know, put their best foot forward to obtain that particular role. And, you know, they're, they're making some sort of claim about either their, you know, background studies or their drive to do something or a broader set of knowledge that they might have. And so it really goes to the character of the person. If, if they claim a particular qualification and they don't have it, then, you know, that's, it begs the question, well, if you're willing to be dishonest about that, what other things have you not been completely upfront about? I mean, here's a situation. I mean, if you look at it, there are some places that certainly in my generation, they were in the UK, they were either like a polytechnic or a college. And they've now and there were people that obviously went through that. And then now that's been absorbed into a university and the polytechnic and the college doesn't exist. So what should they put down in that situation? Because obviously to track it back, the college and the polytechnic's no longer there but it's now classified as a university. So what's the correct thing to do, to be honest? That's an excellent question, Ashley. And you know what? There are certain situations where there's just no way to obtain your historical qualifications. And that's one of the, you know, that's a, that's a great lead-in to one thing I was going to suggest is that if you're in the employment market, no matter what that might be, then the best thing that you can possibly do is to gather together all of these credentials that help to define your life and validate your history. And 
uh, you know, give you that opportunity to move forward. So yeah, we definitely recommend to people that you know, when you've got your qualification or you've got you know, whatever experience you have or referees or whatever else it might be, collect those things in a fashion that um, allows a third-party organisation such as us to audit that and give you a certification that it's real and valid. It does two things. One is captures all of that history forevermore because a qualifi- you only need to ever get that qualification validation once. Once you've got it, you've got it forever because the qualification isn't revoked, right? Um, so if you collect all of that information together, then you'll never lose it. It's under your control and you are the fastest person an employer can hire, right? If I've got to compare two people, one who's got nothing verified and somebody who's got everything verified, I'm naturally going to be able to employ you tomorrow because I haven't got to wait for all of this information to come in. And that's one of the reasons why we've got, we've got a, a, an application that we're launching very shortly that will allow people on their phone to hold all of their credentials in a digital form, completely secure and totally portable. So, you know, they'll never have to go and get this stuff, uh, you know, again, they won't ever lose it and it's completely secure and, and securely shareable. It's interesting that you say that because I remember when I first went in the workforce, you used to put in a CV that had copies of all your qualifications. But now people go, oh, I only want a two page CV. So you have that when you're getting old like me, you've got quite a few. <laughs> it's quite hard to condense it into two pages. So it seems yes, like uh, yeah. the old way almost. Yeah, the old bloodhounds like us, mate. We've got uh, we've got a very big portfolio of things that we can uh, tow along to an interview. Um, but yeah, you're absolutely right. There's so you know that portability uh, and the ability to share it without losing it. Right? Yeah, that's the thing. I used to have a certificate on my wall behind glass. That was, yeah, this is, this is my qualification, right? That's so old hat now because what am I supposed to do? Pull it off the wall and photocopy it or drag it under my arm to an interview and show somebody? Um, nowadays, it, it's actually, it's so much better and easier to keep it in a digital form because it never goes away. It doesn't rot. If you're up here in, you know, in Queensland where I am right now, everything's mildewing and molding off the wall with the rain that we've had. So, uh, yeah, the beauty of, of di- you know, things in a digital form is, it doesn't matter how many times you give it to somebody else or share it. Uh, you've got the ability, especially with the credentials, digital credentials we're bringing out, to even share it and then revoke it. So that, you know, if the, the purpose for which you've shared it is now passed, you're not giving away all your personal information is not sitting out there in the rest of the world for everybody to hold on to stuffed in a filing cabinet somewhere, right? So, so yeah, it's the, the world has completely changed. It's all going digital. And, you know, happily, we are on the, the front foot and the leading edge of that. Now, I mean, I know I asked you this before again was, I mean, there's a lot of people you see with the digital thing, they're putting what they believe are their CVs up on LinkedIn. But, I mean, I noticed some of them where they're a little bit liberal with the truth. Um, do you, again, is that you don't check LinkedIn, but it, would you advise employers to go into that a little bit more thoroughly? Yeah, well, look, we do, we do, um, do social media checks of people's public profiles. So we can have a look on there and, and you're not just necessarily looking for, um, an accurate factual representation of somebody's, you know, work history. Um, you know, things that people should be aware of if they've got publicly available profiles on social media. And we always ask 
and, and let the candidate know that we're looking at those things. But um, you really want to be aware of how you come across online. That's, it's just a fact of life these days. Employers will look, even if they don't ask somebody else you know, like us to go and look for them. Um, most employers will go and look and see what, what you're showing on Facebook, on LinkedIn, on your Instagram posts and things like that. And, and if you've got, you know, hate speech or, or something that could be construed as such or racial discrimination or, you know, poor attitude towards women or minority groups or, you know, in, anything that's socially unacceptable, companies are so aware of their brand these days. And if you, at whatever level of a business you are, if you're not going to be a good brand representative or advocate, then you, know, you might struggle uh, you know, in that hiring process. You might wonder, what was it that I did wrong? My interview seemed to go very well. Um, why did they get you know, a poor impression of me? And it's, it's some silly post that you, you know, put up thinking it was funny 10 years ago. right? So, so I guess that's one thing I would you know, let everyone um, or make sure everyone understands is when you put things out there on the internet, they could potentially be there forever. So be very careful about what you put out there. It, the, um, you know, the bots and the algorithms are getting smarter and smarter at finding linkages and, and information that might be related to you. And, um, you know, I guess the other one is make sure your LinkedIn profile is accurate because that is, you know, employers are definitely going to look at that. And, uh, but, you know, for us, yeah, definitely there's, there's that notion of looking through a, a person's profile and where there are things that we can verify. Like if you, if you say you've got certain work history, we can verify that. If you say you were at a particular position at a certain time, we can verify that. And, uh, and there, there are many things that uh, you know, people might think make them look a little bit better to their peers, but will hurt them when it comes time to, uh, to apply for a job. Yeah, it's really good to hear you say that because I know certainly in the sporting world, there's a lot of the big clubs in various sports that if they've got a young player that they see with potential that they're looking to sign, they're monitoring them for at least a year on social media to see their alcohol behavior, their, whether they're at parties all the time and all of that, exactly to see if they fit the brand of the club and whether they're going to be an asset or detrimental to it. So you're, you're a hundred percent right. And it's, and it's that, that brand management is so important, right? You know, and especially in the sporting world, you know, Australians, we absolutely love our sport and our sporting heroes, right? And we don't want them to, you know, kind of let us down. And, and perhaps that's unfair to expect them to be better than the, but you know, they, they do get a long leash sometimes. Um, but yeah, you know, for, and I know that there are so many sporting clubs and organisations now, you know, they're aware of that. They manage that internally. They give their their team members and staff and all the management, they're all trained in how to deal with these things in a way that doesn't put the club in a, in a bad, or themselves in a bad light. And still people do it, right? So they're, they're human beings. I want to take you back to something you said before about, you know, you said there may have been a teenage misdemeanor. And I mean, I, I was actually, funnily enough, talking to someone the other day who had, um, they were literally 18 years old and they got in trouble with the police. Not been there now in their 30s, have not had any trouble, and it's a spent conviction. Is that yeah. something, again, that an employer will look at, even though it is a spent conviction and it, it was put down as being, you know, teenage hijinks, you know, inexperienced, immature, kind of stupid thing to have done? 
Yeah, absolutely. Look, and that's why that spent conviction legislation is there, right? We don't want, um, you know, the justice system is not about haunting somebody for the rest of their lives, and neither are we. Mm-hmm. Um, it really, it's, it's all about, um, so what the spent, spent convictions legislation assures us of is that if we do learn our lesson and keep our nose clean, and we didn't do something, you know, horrendous that society, uh, you know, looks at as, you know, really um, unforgivable or hard to forgive, uh, so, you know, those minor kind of misdemeanors, they will drop off what's called your publicly disclosable record after, you know, a certain period of time. And that, that's based on the state in which that legislation is applied. So wherever you um, manage to stuff up. <laughs> um, and, and so when somebody, you know, when you get your um, police uh, record or, or your criminal history record in, here in Australia, that information, that will be applied and, and it will be implied with some context. So let's say, for example, the, the role that you're going for is a childcare role. Well, there'll be a different level of consideration around what should be disclosed and what wouldn't be disclosable versus, you know, I'm going into a retail job or um, I'm working as a tradie or something like that. So, so the, the police have uh, got increasingly sophisticated um, methodologies to review all these things. It changes over time. Um, you know, naturally, as community standards and expectations uh, evolve, um, and you know, but the, that information will always be known to the police. That never goes away. But what might be publicly disclosable will change. And so, as far as an employer is concerned, with that sort of a misdemeanor, it would come back as a clear record. Right? So the, the employer doesn't even get to consider it unless the police, in their wisdom and their experience, and based on their legislation that they're applying if they consider that to be relevant to that uh, that situation and i suppose finally i mean when we were talking setting up this interview you were saying apart from doing all of these checks the one advice you would give to any employer is trust your gut feeling uh do you still stand by that oh look you know i think the the thing is that you have to trust but verify right so um for every case where you know, I, I know, uh, we know of somebody, we hear somebody that's got um, our gut feeling about something. Really, I think that the thing you want to trust is that if there's something in your gut telling you there's something wrong, then you should continue to dig. Um, but what I wouldn't trust is my judgment that everything is okay, right? Because we have this natural bias towards wanting to think the best of other people, even the most cynical of us, are biased in that way, right? And and the, the other one is that um, if you do these things systematically and in a recurring fashion over the life of an employee, whatever is appropriate to their role, then you can sleep at night. All of the people who have carriage of that risk from a legal perspective, from a financial perspective in your organisation, they all sleep better. So, you know, for me, it's it's much better to err on the side of a thorough, systematic approach to all of this at an appropriate level. Well, Colin, it's been fantastic catching up with you. Thank you so much for your time and uh, all the very best. Hey, thanks very much, Ashley. It's been a pleasure talking with you and uh, all the best. Hi, I'm Mark Leduca and you're listening to Not The Footy Show.
Well, that was Colin Boyan from CV Check, and uh, hopefully you found that really interesting. Now, I should just mention, John, one thing. We had a conversation off-air after with that interview, which is a little bit longer than normal, uh, but I just thought it was really interesting and some really good information uh, where he was saying, trust your gut. But he was saying one of the problems you have is if you get your identity stolen and then somebody does a lot of illegal stuff with your identity, it is extremely difficult to then basically prove that it wasn't you or that you didn't do those things. Now, I mean, if you think about that, that's quite scary in a world where people are not checking properly. Um, So it, again, backs up why you need to do those checks. Um, One of the things history teaches you is that the the first narrative out there is a narrative that gets trusted as the truth and everything else has to disprove that. The narrative itself isn't never gets questioned as to proving itself. It's the people who have to disprove it that have to come up with or say, no, that's wrong, have to come up with all the proof. So you get stuck in a... And that happens across all parts of life and stuff. But yeah, I mean, I, mean I, I think I've told you before that I've got a few of those out there in the world that I've been do. accused of. I mean, there's one that is a legendary thing I'm supposed to have done at my old school, which I wasn't even within a mile of the event when it happened, oh. so... Oh, oh, I haven't heard this story. Oh, here we go. Oh, I'm, look, I'm, I'm happy to share it. It was, it was the very end of my, uh, school days. We were on a, at a cricket carnival and, uh, the next day was going to be my last game ever for the school. And I was level with the most wickets taken in a season. So we'd all gone out, had a few beers and, uh, we was 18, I should say. <laughs> so, um, and then that night it happened that at the school that was hosting us, and we were staying over a mile away from the school, uh, one of the flagpoles either side of the pavilion got pulled down and pulled across the pitch. And our coach came up to me the next morning and told me to apologise. I'm going, what for? He goes, well, you did it. And I said, I didn't do it. I was in bed. Like We were in like a, a, a room with four other people, and like they all know that I never got out of bed. And apparently it's that, like this legend now that I did this, and I wasn't even there. Didn't do it. You know what, I don't think it's so much that you, you've been accused of it. I just think that that's something below you. Dragging a flagpole across an oval is not something I can see. You I would never drag anything across a cricket pitch because that's sacrosanct that's exactly to me. Right. Now, that had it been something amazing like going out on town and all these crazy things happening and donkeys ending up in people's lounge rooms or something, maybe. But something as banal as that, no, that's... Well, well I will tell you something that I did do that. I- <laughs> <laughs> no. So we were. Was it the donkey that brought it all back? <laughs> no, 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 no. This one we did do, and it's quite a humorous story. So oh, we gosh. actually, um, there was some roadworks. We were in Bedford in the UK, yeah. and uh, one of the there was some roadworks that night, and so they'd taken the major signs down. And anyway, we thought we'd have a bit of fun and change two of them around. Oh. And um, the oh, thing that was funny was the next day, one of our players, who was actually there helping us switch these road signs, then followed the wrong one and went in completely the wrong direction trying to get home. Are, are we going to get angry letters now from people that 40 years ago <laughs> <laughs> took the wrong turn? Uh, if it was the, the signpost going to Kim Bolton, I remember that. So <laughs> my apologies man. if you went the wrong way. Okay, let's get back on track, shall we? Talk about some sport. No, look, it should be. You, we, as say members or supporters, expect that there's a certain level of um, research going to the people <laughs> that would be appointed into what we would consider very important positions within our 
individual sports or but i think as well john and this is my view of some of it i think some of these sports use an employment agency that they think is going to do all those checks for them but some of the employment agencies are extremely lazy and go for the easy option without actually doing the correct checks because at the end of the day all they really want is their commission for finding the staff member to fill the hole at that sporting organization okay fair enough i mean it's a pity that organisations themselves just can't take that on. I, I'm not sure how much time and effort it takes to do those sorts of checks. That, but now it doesn't take you any time. You make a phone call, and a week later you get a, a email back telling you, I suppose, with CV check. Yeah, I mean, I think they're very thorough. And look, I, I think this... It's, it's a not sh- a paid promotion, by the way. No, it's not. Absolutely not. There is no money come our way at all. But I just thought it was good to talk to an organisation in that space yeah. that has been created because there is a need. And look, we could go through many, many, many examples of people we know in the sports world that claim certain things that just aren't true. Exactly. So. Your turn. My turn. Oh, Ashley. I've, I've, I've discovered, I've, I've realised something this week. We're dinosaurs. Yeah, I knew that. I sometimes feel like a diplodocus because I think that had two brains and that's why they reckon it became well, extinct. Well, it was its ass, wasn't it? <laughs> it was. <laughs> and I sometimes think mine is. <laughs> no, I, I, I'm, I'm serious. I think people with views of sport like us are now dinosaurs. Sport is business now. It, it, it's no longer, um, about all the things it used to be and all the things that we loved sport for being what it was about. It's just business. Yeah, and I'll ask you a question then. If it's business, is that why some of the passion that fans used to have is going? I don't know that the fans lack passion, but they're more likely to follow a player than they are. Oh, that's a known fact now, yeah. Yeah, than they are to a club. They're... and. They'll drop off you real quick. Fans are only... A, a lot of fans have sort of come and go. I, I find the whole following a player thing in a team sport kind of quite a weird one. It's like, yes, I had my heroes when I was growing up. Like Gordon Banks was my hero. And, you know, when he was at Stoke City, you know, and, and all of that. But And I didn't support Stoke City, but he was just my hero. I just thought he was so good. But Swindon was my team, and I had far more passion for them than I did for any other club. Still do to this day, you know? Yeah, and the whole the whole way we now run the sport as a business model and all those sorts of things, players are employees. Um, they're not players anymore, <laughs> if you know what I mean. That's a good point you make, though. So if players are employees and sport is a business, yeah. should we be seeing players being treated like standard employees in standard businesses. So yeah. their their behaviours should have to be in line with someone that's working in an office job. Again, that if you step out of line and you are doing things that are wrong... Well, how can it possibly straddle anymore? How can it pro- possibly say, oh, it's the business of sport rather than the sport... Uh, sports business if you know what i mean like yeah i understand you can't you can't be claiming all of this stuff that we loved as kids about all the stuff that amateurism bought and all the you know why people followed sport and why it meant so much because it doesn't mean that anymore it's now a business it's about signing contracts it's about fulfilling obligations blah 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 sport used to be just about turning up and training and accepting everything and 
I mean, it's you know, funny, I watched... Oh. And, and now it's a business, you know, decisions made by people within sport, like umpires and administrators and coaches and even players themselves, have effect on your ability to generate an income, then suddenly we're moving away from a legal framework of amateur sport to the legal framework of you're an employee, which are completely different things. Now, say an umpire makes a bad decision about uh, that affects an individual. That actually ends up affecting an individual's contract and ability to generate income. Are we going to get to the stage one day where someone does actually sue an umpire for a decision they made on the field that was incorrect? I sure hope we don't. Or a club. But there, there's sort of areas we're moving into in the future, not right now. I yeah. can't see it happening in the next five or ten years, maybe. But... but- the, the further we move down that path, the further those things are likely to occur. But but you look at it in, in the UK. Ball? You're seeing you're seeing in the the Premier League. You know, Manchester United was a prime example. A coach being sacked because of the share price. It wasn't necessary. I mean, it, yes, it was put out there because the performance was unacceptable. But when you looked then at his replacement and how he actually had a worse performance rate than the guy before him, but it was purely the share price. The share price dropped below a level that the board deemed was acceptable and they were going to lose too much money, so the coach had to go. Well, have a, have a look at um, the playoff game uh, between um, uh, Sheffield... No, not Sheffield United. Um, Notts Forest and... Um, I forget the other side. Starts with a B. Uh, yeah, I'm not... <laughs> it was for the Division yep. 1 up until... Yeah, and Notts Forest won it was, it was with a, some dodgy decisions. It, yeah. Exactly. Now, yep. if... if it will get to the stage where if you've got video evidence and you can see it from all different angles and you take it to court, that club could say, we were dudded by this individual's poor decisions and it's cost us money because we're a business now. We ain't a sport. It was Huddersfield. It wasn't Huddersfield. Beat. That's beat. it, yeah. Oh, that might have been one of the other games. Uh, well, anyway. Mansfield-Port Vale was the one I was interested in, but anyway, yeah. But... Is, is it going to, is sport going to move towards where that framework exists and we become part of it? Because we, we claim and people, oh, top echelon sports people claim it's a business. So is it a business or is it sport? If it's sport, you've got to cut all this other crap out of it and just be sport. But if you're going to be business, these are the things that go along with being a business. I think one of the sad That's things. That's like a company being dudded out of a contract, essentially. Oh, yeah. And I mean, but then you're going to have the issue as well where, you know, you, you imagine you've got all these um, sort of fan websites and blogs, etc., where they could be writing stuff that is detrimental to the business that is the oh, yeah. club. And so then they find themselves Absolutely. culpable unless they can back up what they're saying. Well, how long do you reckon it's going to take before some sports person does take a Twitter user to court over calling them a flog on Twitter? Or Facebook, or whatever you want, whatever forum you use to abuse people. Yeah, and, and it will happen, and it'll start. Well, this is where I think we, we we must clamp down, and that's another story for another day. But I think we need to clamp down on the abuse on those anyway. Yeah, and which think about umpires. Now we, we're in a situation across global sport where umpires are being singled out, not for abuse necessarily. That's always happened, okay, but. Be nice to umpires, be nice to umpires is a general measure. We've got to respect our umpires. Sports losing umpires. We can't get any umpires to, to go to games and all that sort of stuff. And that's fair enough. But you're a business. Yeah, uh, I'm, You're a business now. And guess what comes with being in a business? Criticism comes with being in a business. 
But but that goes back actually to some of the interview with Colin Boyan because he was saying again that there is a responsibility of the sport to all of those people. Now, and I'm going to go on to that because I think within those sports, in a lot of cases, they need to better look after those officials. In other words, by that, make some of the rules, and this is across all sports, I'm not picking on any, more black and white so that everyone can understand that they're not open to interpretation and they are simpler for everybody to understand at all levels of the game. One of the things we're seeing, and I've heard you guys criticize this on your podcast, The Reverse Stick, is a lot of the rules in hockey are pitched at the highest level. And they don't translate then to the average player playing on a weekend in a club game for fun. And that is a big, big problem in that particular sport. And it's one of the things that football, soccer football, has done really well, is maintain that connection with the rules all the way through the grades of football. The only difference between top flight football and the rest of the game is the VAR. Yep. They all play under exactly the same rules. And most fans don't want it, you yeah, know? But they all, all grades of football play under exactly the same rules. And that's one of the, that's a really good thing that they've got going in that sport. And, Hockey's a bit different, obviously. But we've got a situation here in Hockey WA where only the top two or three grades get allocated umpires up to certain level. I can't remember exactly how far down it goes. But say grades such as the one I'm playing, lower grades of hockey, we have to supply our own umpires. So where does that leave the umpire? Because as far as I'm concerned, Hockey WA has abrogated their responsibility to provide an umpire and told us to go and get umpires. So they don't come under the umbrella. They haven't been appointed by Hockey WA. So exactly where do they fit under the Hockey WA framework? Because we have to go and A, source the umpire, and B, pay the umpire. So they're an employee of they're, your club. Well, they're a subcontractor. Yeah. So how does, how does that work out as far as if that umpire makes a dud decision? Or, Is your club culpable? Well, no. It, well, yeah, if say, the opposition, if going back off. to your argument, yeah. is going that the, you cost the other team promotional relegation because of decisions in that game, can they come back to you because you were the club who hired the umpire that made the decision that cost or, them? Or even still, I'm, I'm sending you off, there's a green card. No, you're not. What do you mean? Well, no, you're not. I'm not going. What authority does that person have other than the authority we give him, allow them on the, on the day? If that was a hockey WA... It's clear as everything. It, yeah, and I've got to just shut up and accept whatever. But it's not. We pay for that person. Yeah, it, it's this is the trouble. When you cross over and it becomes a business and it's not just about sport, recreation and fun. I mean, one of the points... It's I'm, more about these organisations. They've got their starry eyes on the top and are forgetting about the stuff that happens down below. Hockey WA... Which is their bread and butter. Yeah, hockey WA... Don't worry about Hockey Australia and high-performance units. Worry about getting your competitions right. Well, they don't need to worry about that because that's Hockey Australia's job. (sighs) But, but John, there's one thing that I find really sad, and it goes back to what you were first saying there, is, you know, I remember growing up as a kid, you would see players walking to the ground or whatever. I mean, in the years ago before I was even you know, born, they caught the bus or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And, and fans would be on the bus with the players. And I think one of the things that made sports so wonderful was that tangibility that, that the players, you saw them, they were there. And I was watching something the other day and I saw somebody was commenting 
about how you don't get that now, that the players are coming into a lot of the stadia. The bus doesn't even stop outside of the ground. In a lot of these new stadia, the bus drives into the ground. So you can't even see the players arriving, which was one of the thrills when you were a kid to see your heroes coming down off the bus. And, And I think those little things are a great loss to sport because that was where you were in awe as a child looking up at these players coming off the bus and you'd seen them up close. You wouldn't have been able to touch them because you were still kept back, but that was such an important thing. Well, and they, I think we've lost it now. Pardon? It, it brought everybody. Cause they and were, you saw they were human. They, were, they weren't yeah, as exactly. big. They're not wearing you know, golden underwear. Yeah. You know, I mean, when you saw them on the pitch or on the TV, they looked like seven foot tall and they looked huge. And then when they stepped off the bus, you go, oh, yeah. wow, he's not that Immortal. big. Yeah. And uh, to me, that was really, really important. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. And, and I think we've lost a lot of that. And when people look at participation numbers and say they're declining, I think this has a lot to do with it, that suddenly sport is no longer touching the people the way it used to. Did you see that there's um, the report came out this week talking about um, people are returning to community sport, but they're tending to return to individual sports, not going back to the team sports that they were playing beforehand. And that's that's a movement walking ahead in the future too. That's going, People are going to be more interested in, you know, jumping out of airplane or satisfying their individual need to do things. They're not going to be so prepared to sacrifice to play team sport because to play team sport, you do have to sacrifice. Yep. There's a, a sacrifice of your ego. There's a sacrifice of a few things. But you, when you're playing individual sports, it's all about you and you don't have to worry about anything else. And I think you're also seeing a lot of people that are getting a group of guys together or girls to play a game against another group that you're seeing it unofficial games are becoming a lot more popular oh yeah Uh, and people are just because there's not that commitment week in week out it is fun it's enjoyable and you can just have a laugh and have a beer at the end of it which is what we all wanted in the beginning isn't that sport ashley it is good to see you again See ya. We'll be back next week.